Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving Iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. Mark with Sean Hackett. This edition of Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Axon Tire, helping dealers move more iron for the past 100 years. For more information, call axontire.com. I just you don't have to call them, just go on the internet, type in axontire.com. It's much easier that way. They'll hit, they'll get that way faster. Axon would love to give the loyal listeners of the Moving Iron Podcast a free beanie. And with as cold as been in my neck of woods, that's going to come in handy. Uh, pretty well, pretty much everywhere cold has been he's just going to come in handy so if you want one of those send an email to marketing at axontire.com and axon will send you that free beanie in the mail so just give me your information there and you will get all the information or all the free beanie sent to you as fast as they possibly can send to you valid transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years call parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs at valid transportation our goal is to help you reach yours and no matter how you buy your ag equipment whether it's from a dealer an auction or a private party ag direct can help you finance it you could even apply online at agdirect.com learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com tractor zoom has access to over 20 billion dollars in heavy equipment sales data tractor zoom's iron comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and optimal pricing insights this podcast is also brought to you by anvil AppWorks. the dealer connect crmi app with integrated inventory management is an affordable salesforce-based solution for your dealership create create connected customer experience and transform how you work today Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida, and he is nice enough to make it back one more time for the 2023 rendition of the Moving Iron Podcast Market. So, Sean, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm back from a little vacation. I yeah. uh, got my uh, uh, lengthy year-ahead report out and uh, kind of laid the foundation of what I think is to take place here. And I'm excited about um, getting back on the road, furthering what I think is uh Going to be a you know pretty wild year for weather and trying to get as many um, those involved in agriculture, um, you know, having a you know kind of getting on board to what I think the weather is going to be doing, continue to be doing, and how it's going to continue to challenge the supply side of the equation um, and provide opportunities not only for those on the buy side but those on the sell side as weather as the price volatility will lead the weather volatility, but 
Right now, the 2023, our work is suggesting that the Gleisberg cycle that we've talked about before, we're getting some clarity that um, El Nino is not going to arrive in time for the growing season in 23. Um, it's going to arrive later in this year. That's And so that means, remember, a major drought in the U.S. cannot happen if you have El Nino, but it can happen if you have neutral, what's called La Nada or La Nina. So it looks like, and we went back in our report, as you know, and we went back to 1850 and did a bunch of statistical work on all the readings that we have at the end of the year. And none of them are supportive of having El Nino arrive in time, which means that this one in 100 year cycle, which we also went back and verified to the year 955 to the present, we verified this cycle. We went over the differential each year. There's some variability, but it has equaled exactly 89 years. 89 years from 1934 is 2023. So we believe that this particular year, 23, is a higher is a is a is escalating to be a high probable year that this Gleisberg cycle will kick in in 23 versus 24, which would be an El Nino year. So we're we're, we're pretty much getting re- ready um, to see if that cycle plays out. And if we're correct about what is to take place, we should get a big correction in grains heading into March, April on an early spring some good moisture to get off to the season with some of this winter moisture we've been getting um, big production out of Brazil, even though Argentina is poor, Brazil will override. And we think that, you know, those on the buy side, cash side in the livestock sector or those farmers who have made sales that want to sort of counter hedge those sales, you know, based upon the potential for a one in 100 year drought, uh, this growing cycle here in the U S you know, we were really gearing our client customers up for, you know, an opportunity here in March, April to get some buy side, you know, hedges on to uh, to mitigate that risk uh, to the income and economics on the farm. So, okay. So let, let's talk about this a little bit. So from the weather perspective, you've talked about here uh, on this podcast quite a bit about, you know, what solar cycles and what that looks like in the elongating of the jet streams and what that looks like. So you get a very high peaks up and down like this and we're in, and inside those peaks, whether you're at, you're going to get cold air or you're going to get warm air, depending on where you're at. Um, I thought about this, you know, when we were, I was getting ready for this and kind of taking some notes over the weekend, looking at some other stuff. And you take a look at the weather in California that's supposed to happen next week. It's supposed to be almost like summer-like temperatures in, in that Southern California region. But then you take a look at where I'm at here in the, in the middle of the country and we're, it's not like record cold by any means, but it's, I mean, it's cold, you know, we're 20 degrees, 30 degree temperatures throughout those time frames. Is that an example of what you're talking about when you talk about these elongations in the gesturing? Remember uh, the amplica- amplification of the jet stream means that the jet stream is like you said, very back and forth. So if you're on if you're on the upward portion, it brings the warm air up super hot. If you're on the downward portion, it's crazy cold. And where you where it meets, you get all kinds of snow, historical feet of snow and record bombogenesis storms, that sort of thing. So um Yes, it has a lot to do with where that placement is. So now, you know, we had this w- severe winter kill event, not till just a well, week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, two weeks ago. It just buried KC wheat, buried SRW wheat with no snow cover. Um, and now we're getting a warm up. But now over in Ukraine, Russia, 
they're on the downslope now of that, meaning that this, this amplified gesturing flipped or not flipped, but it's, it's, it, it phased to the right. Mm-hmm. So now where it was cold, it's warm. Where it was warm, it's now cold. So now there's a major winter kill potential here over the next week, week and a half in Russia, Ukraine, all the warm weather they had over there when we were having all our cold weather, because they were on the upward portion of the jet stream that melted all the snow now means that they're very vulnerable to winter kill. So yes, that is what an amplified jet stream does. It provides this extreme weather volatility where, I mean, I was in the mountains of West Virginia, minus 18 degrees, you know, uh, with uh, winds blowing 30 to 40 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a week and a half later, it's 55 degrees in the same spot. That's the weather volatility that this kind of an amplified jet stream um, produces. Um, and that and that's and that's consistent with these grand solar cycles where you have these very, very it, think of it this way. Anything that's living, whether you're an animal, whether you're a plant, um, you can adjust to just about anything if you have time to adjust. Right. But when you flip from minus 18 to 55 to minus 18 within weeks of each other, no human, no plant. Nothing living is able to adjust and modulate and, and equilibrate to those kinds of dramatic changes. Now, we say like the winter wheat crop. If you have very cold weather persistently, it hardens the winter wheat crop. It makes it stronger. It makes it able to handle colder temperatures later and prevents winter kill. But when you go from warm to cold, it can't handle it. It has, it has not had time to harden up. That's what makes it so very difficult to grow food in this kind of an environment. Now, over time, as this grand solar cycle, remember, it's just gotten started, right. just in the early but as it goes further along, the cold becomes more pronounced, the cold becomes longer in duration, and the heat becomes less in duration and less extreme. So over time, the trends move colder. But I don't want anyone to ever think that in a period of global cooling, you're never going to break record hot temperatures. You are. It just means that you're going to have less of them and that the duration of heat that you're going to have is going to be less than the duration of cold that you're going to have as a general rule of thumb. Um, and that's what history has told us from the Maunder minimum to the Dalton minimum to the Spore minimum. We go going down all these grand minimums that happen every 220 years, going back thousands of years. Um, this is what's, this is what, this ultimately does. And ultimately what usually puts the final nail in the coffin, hate to use such a <laughs> dreary uh, analogy, but um, is, it tends to be these hurricanes, not these hurricanes, these volcanic eruptions that are volcanic explosivity index of six or higher that pump copious amounts of sulfur dioxide in the structure and create an, an additional cooling effect. Mount Tambora in 18... 12, 18, 15, the last, uh, the last grand solar cycle did it. Now, this last one that we had in Tonga a year ago could have been one of those, but it was an underwater volcano. It was big enough. It was strong enough. It blew its top off. It was a VEI-6, but it was an underwater volcano, and it pumped the water vapor instead of sulfur dioxide. So in a sense, uh, we got a, a very lucky break with that one because it's not going to create a net cooling effect 
that you would expect to see. It's actually going to create a net warming effect, according to those far smarter about this. And I've shared some of these articles in our reports of some of this research has been done um, for the next couple of years. So it's, it's kind of kicked the can down that this this one was a warning of what's to come. But we were able to we, we got a pass. We got a pass on this one. Mm-hmm. We are not likely to get another one of these where it's an underwater volcano that does it. The next one of these is going to be the sulfur dioxide one. And it's going to occur deeper into the grand minimum, which means it's going to have a more much more deleterious effect than one that would have happened early in the grand solar cycle minimum. But so it's a warning cycle that we're getting these bigger volcanic eruptions on a more regular basis. As we discussed years ago, Casey, on your show, we need to be on the lookout for these larger volcanic eruptions that then tend to occur when the sun goes quiet. And sure enough, we did get one. We just didn't get the sulfur dioxide uh Influent on this one, and like, and I want to, I want to, want to reiterate, and I, and I know probably I'm, uh, you know, repeating myself too much, but I want everyone to understand there is no example of that happening in a th- over over a thousand years having a water vapor volcanic eruption of this size. It's literally an unprecedented situation that occurred. So, uh, having said that, to have two of those in a row is probably not a good bet. Meaning the next one's going to be sulfur dioxide, um, and we need to be ready to. Be, be ready for that when it, when, it, when that one comes and, and be ready to react when that one comes. Yep. So, Yep. All right. <clears throat> so let's just talk a little bit about, about what we see happening in the markets right now. You talked about, I've seen a lot of pictures on Twitter, you know, of guys that are showing like Panhandle, Oklahoma, uh, Panhandle, Texas, North Texas, uh, West Texas, wheat, and those kind of things. And they're saying, you know, the condition of, of the wheat crop is, and it's just a bare dirt scenario out there it hasn't even emerged yet in a lot of places and where it did emerge like you talked about there's pretty pretty good uh winter kill effect that took place there as you're looking at um as you're looking at what's going on in the wheat market right now what what's your speculation right now as you look ahead into um you know coming out of dormancy in the spring what, what's your anticipation right now of the wheat crop and i mean is it obviously too early to, to really pin that but i mean there's got to be some major concern out there right now with what we see in the, in the wheat market well, going into dormancy with the either the worst or second worst variety crop ever um, since we've been recording it, and having now had a major winter kill event on a at least let's say fifty percent of the acreage, and now probably going to have a major winter kill event in Russia, Ukraine on probably about fifty percent of the acreage. Um, you know the prospects for anything good this spring. Um, are not good. Now, one would say, well, Sean, why is the wheat market down? Why is it not going up? Well, it's hard to get the market excited when the wheat crop is in dormancy and, you know, no one really knows for sure, right? I mean, we, we'll see how it happens when it comes out. We'll see what the rains are. Um, so it's hard to get the market to react to something that's still three months away. You know, harvest is still, you know, looking out there in May, June, right? And we're, and And so, so the market is, is is aware of how bad the crop is. The market is aware of the winter kill, but it it just doesn't tend to react until it sees this crop coming out of dormancy, and it starts to get a couple of crop ratings, and it starts to take a look at how things are really looking when it comes out, and then they and then they go, it is the worst winter crop. <laughs> it, it actually is. You know, right. it, yeah. it, 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 you would think the market wouldn't need to do that. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, as long as I've been covering these markets, especially winter wheat, it waits for that. So, so what we do is we build up the evidence in advance, 
and then the market uh, marks the coming out of dormancy conditions with what we thought they were. And if they match up, then it starts to react, especially if there's anything that goes wrong with the spring growing season. So my anticipation is, um, you know, that the market is going to continue to go sideways, build this base, maybe work its way higher. But, you know, the explosive time for the winter wheat market is going to be, you know, we get into March and April um, and this crop is look is just very, very bad. And we see how much the winter kill really impacted the additional acreage that were, you know, and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, that's when the market should really react. Remember right now, Russia had a record wheat crop last year and they have record ending stocks sitting in their country and they are selling it aggressively. It keeps shortages from being felt right now. We've talked about this. Yep. Um, Ukraine was allowed to sell wheat when everyone thought they wouldn't be. A, I don't know how it's actually happened. I really don't know how it's happened, how they've actually been able to get this wheat out. It's it's a marvel, you know, that I that, that someday somebody can write a book and, and describe how all this wheat was shipped out of Ukraine during chaotic wartime situation. But it has, at least according to the numbers. So that's just keeping the market saying, why should we worry right now? So long as Ukraine and now Russia are, are providing the market with needed wheat, the shortage is just not going to be seen right now. And this is at a time that everyone's very bearish commodities. The dollar's been strong. The Fed's raising rates. The Fed's lowering liquidity. Commodities have gotten hit very hard the last 12 months. You know, crude oil's down from 125 to 70, 75. You know, uh, wheat's gone from 14 down to seven and a half. You know, we've had a lot of you know natural gas under four in, in the spring months, down from 10. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen some really nasty knockdowns in a lot of different commodities, Casey. So this is, you know, nobody, you know, so, so understand we're also in an environment where nobody wants to buy commodities right now. So my expectation is that wheat is low enough now. It's a good value now that the demand will be there that we're going to see this market continue to base out until we get to the post-dormancy season in March and April. After that, I think the conditions could get fairly explosive with corn and soybeans. You know, I think we've kind of traded Argentina as much as we can, you know, you can only trade a story for so long. You can only trade drought for so long and you say, well, we've traded, it's not going to be zero. It's, but we've kind of traded it, but Brazil looks so good that you know it's not a it's not a all for one one for all it's a, it's it's brazil's really good and brazil's going to actually overcome most of what argentina is taking away doesn't mean that there's massive oversupply in the region but it takes away the bullish punch that you can get out of argentina if brazil remains as good as it looks and harvest is just starting in brazil and the soybeans look fantastic and corn you know looks like it'll be good as well so so and if we have an early spring, like we said earlier, and we have good initial moisture and we get off to a record early start, the market's going to say, ah, record yields on the way. So my expectation is we're going to have a pretty bearish period here, Casey, for grains heading into March, early April. And that's which point that we want to be taking advantage of that volatility to the downside. Remember, volatility means up and down. Right. I know most people think it's always up. No, it's up and down. Meaning the livestock guy gets a shot to buy a big down and the producer gets a shot to sell the big up. But that's why volatility can be so uh, beneficial. 
mm-hmm. because it's up and down. And if you can time those ups and downs uh, and uh, to your advantage, you can you can buy cheap feet and you can sell expensive feet. You know, right. depending on what side of the market you're on. Um, so that's what we're geared. We're geared because we were very confident El Nino is not going to arrive until later in the year. And all the work that we've done on this Gleisberg cycle, we also talked about the nine-year cycle and a separate 89-year cycle of crop failures for corn in the United States going back hundreds and hundreds of years. It picked the 1988 drought, and the next iteration of the 89-year cycle is 2023. It's a different cycle in the Gleisberg than the nine-year cycle, which means every nine years you tend to have a crop problem, not a historic crop problem, but a crop problem is 2023. The Gleisberg cycle of 89-year, one-year droughts is 89 years from 2000, from 1934, which is 2023. You can't make all this stuff up. Like, I mean, all these cycles are kind of alignment that 23 seems to be a pretty high probability year. Now, remember that Gleisberg can be, you know, there can be some variability. When, when we went through all the data, you know, it's 89 years, but it can be up a, a little more, a little less. So it could be 23 or 24, or 25. But looking at how we're setting up with everything and these other things that we're doing, 23 looks like it could be, you know, a high probability year. Like we talked about with the Brazil frost, you know, we were making a, a projection at that time that we were going to see the first frost in, I think, 26 years, um, that, that we had the highest probability of having a major frost the first one in 26 years. Now, just because there's a high probability doesn't mean it absolutely positively 100% has to happen. There's no 100% absolutes, but it says that you ha- that you have the best possible chance you are going to get for something that's highly extraordinary. 2023 seems to be set up for that exact scenario. So what we're telling our customers to do is take the money home on the farm. Prices are good. Income is good. You got to pay your bills. You got to make your bankers happy, but be ready to be proactive on your um, hedging program when that downside volatility gives us an opportunity to um, protect against that potential upside. That one in one hundred year weather volatility event that could, you know, I don't think I don't think I have to tell anybody that if we had a corn crop down 20 or 30 percent from trend like we had in 2012 which by the way wasn't that long ago we had a a corn crop down over 30 percent from trend it happened just 10 years ago just 10 years ago we were 30 percent below trend it it, now now everyone says it can't happen i'm just sitting to tell you that i don't think it's it's rocket science that if we had a crop this year in corn that was down 20 or 30 percent from trend with no ending stocks i don't think i have to tell anybody that that's probably going to be pretty wild situation mm-hmm. to where corn prices may decide it ultimately wants to go. We can argue all we want where that number is, but I don't think it'd be a small move. I right. think it'd be a small move. Yep. All right. So that great segue. You must, we're like, it must've given you my script or something like that. So <laughs> as you're looking, as you're looking at yeah, this, I got your text right here. Yeah. <laughs> so my next, my next question was with this biodiesel craze that we've got, how many acres are the soybeans going to steal from corn and couple of what you just said? I mean, you planted less acres of corn and you're going to have trend line yields way down from what you saw. You could almost have a perfect storm in the corn market. Well, this is the way with this. Well, this is how we see the setup, Casey. It's, it's the craziest setup I've ever seen in my entire career. I'm not saying that just because, you know, I want more people to subscribe to your uh, channel, although I do. But 
I um, really do too. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> China's going through a reopening, chaotic reopening, like every other country has. They finally have come to the understanding you cannot keep a country locked down forever. Eventually, you have to let everybody get the disease or get a vaccine or get treated by there's some of the treatments out there. Mm-hmm. Paxlovid. Right. Ivermectin. I don't know. Take your take your pick. Whatever you think works, right? And it's ugly. It's ugly. We went through it. It's ugly. Every, uh, you know, and they're going through that, and it's ugly. And everyone is panicking. Everyone's staying home. Everyone's afraid to go out. No one. They're in a complete chaotic economic situation, and demand is actual is hitting kind of a complete deep dark hole right now. And commodities are getting hit because of that. But we know that's a temporary hole. Mm-hmm. You come out of the hole, meaning everybody eventually gets it. Everybody gets immune to it. Everybody says, oh, everything looks good. We're going to go back out and, re- and fire this thing up again. And so what happens in the second quarter onward when 1.3 billion Chinese say it's safe to go back out and work again? It's going to be the most wild, craziest boomerang demand side situation that we've ever seen. It was crazy when we reopened. It was crazy when Europe reopened. It was crazy when India reopened. It's going to be insane when China gets through this rough patch three or four or five months from now, and they're ready to rock, and everyone is comfortable to get back to business again. At the same time, at the same time, we have a situation where not only our government, Indonesia, other governments, have put huge amounts of money behind renewable diesel from vegetable oils. In Indonesia, it's palm oil. Here, it's bean oil. Pick your vegetable oil of choice. But it's basically, it's using vegetable oils to make diesel and, and, and jet fuel and those kind of things that, that is supposedly, you know, more economically friendly. Um, and, and the government's, in all the, in the United States, all these processing plants um, are either about to complete construction are soon to complete construction or are about to begin construction to end. And if you look at all the bean crushing capacity that's going to be coming online between now and the end of 2024, and if all those plants ran at hundred percent and how many beans they would be able and willing to crush and how much bean oil we would need to produce in order to meet the demand that appears to be already baked in the cake from, from government support and from policies in, in states like California that are mandating this, um, you'd need to plant like 100 to 110 million acres at least. And it still wouldn't su- produce enough soybeans for that. So uh, my point- can amount above and beyond what they normally plant. Well, yeah, I mean, they're typically planting 88. Try it. 85, 90. Double. So so they're going to go from 88 to 90 to, let's say, 100 to 110. So they're going to have to plant, let's say, let's just pick 15 to 20 million more soybean acres. And that still isn't even close, actually, to producing enough soybeans. So that says to me a few things. Either, well, first of all, the numbers just start looking at it. the, The numbers just don't work. Right. Something's wrong with the numbers. We actually can't produce enough soybeans for apparently the crushing capacity is coming online and for what the government and what state governments have mandated they want. We, it, it's, it really, it, there's a problem there. Right. Forgetting the problem. It doesn't mean the government's not going to 
give it a go, right? They're going to give it a shot because that's what they do. So what does that mean for soybean exports to the rest of the world? If we are going to crush every single bean we produce in this country for biodiesel, renewable diesel, what happens to our exports? We don't export any soybeans, or if we do, the buyers of exp- the exporter, the ones that are importing soybeans from the US, have to pay an exorbitant price to get the bean crushers in the US to not make money. Meaning they're going to have to try to get to the price so high that the bean crushers can't make money buying the beans, even with the government subsidy giving them money to crush the beans. Now, I'm not smart enough to know exactly where all those numbers are because we, you know it depends on a lot of different factors. But if we have a short soybean crop and you have that going on, Casey, and you have the Chinese all rip-roaring in a boomerang demand side base and they're stimulating the the economy to get it back on on track, but get it back. Remember, the Chinese economy has not been online in two years. It's been literally partially offline for two years. Yeah. I have never seen a setup like this in my entire life. You can't make this stuff up, but it's possible. It's possible you could have a just horrific corn and soybean crop, and at least the case soybean crop, and all this demand. And oh, that's right, we do. We need we by 2024, we need 110 million acres, and that doesn't even come close to do it. Where are these acres going to come from, Casey? Who, who's going to give up the acres? Cotton, exactly. rice, corn. Last time I checked, there's not a whole lot of any of those lying around either. I mean, right. quite frankly, every single crop needs more cor- more acres. Right. The numbers don't work. So there's going to be some really ugly uh, dislocations and misfirings and mismatches between who needs what and what's available and who's – it's going to be – quite frankly, it's going to be chaotic. And I think one of the reasons that this record – uh, Brazilian soybean crop is not having the kind of depressing effect on soybeans that many have been anticipating. Meaning, you know, soybean, eh, eh, eh. well, I mean, certainly the Argentine drought has been one reason, un- undoubtedly, okay? But I also think people aren't stupid. I'm not the only one looking at these numbers and going, these numbers just don't work. We, If the U.S. is going to get out of the export business and selling soybeans to the rest of the world, then that means everyone has to buy their soybeans from Argentina and from Brazil, which means every single bushel that they're producing is actually still not enough. Right. If the if the U.S. exits the export market and uses all their soybeans to produce biodiesel, so that's the kind of things we're thinking about. Um, that's not a today thing. It's not a next week thing. I'm like, we're we're actually fairly bearish rains short term, as we just described in the March April. But that also means that. Not only you know that that there's that we think that those on the buy side, the cash side of soybeans and corn, uh, you know, the processors should get a really good opportunity, Casey, not only to buy into what could be this one in one hundred year drought, but to buy into this crazy demand situation that we've created for ourselves on this with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, that poured all this money into the biodiesel sector, and at the same time, um, you know, the Chinese just needing all kinds of needing everything, needing pork, needing beef, needing chicken, needing corn feed, needing bean meal, needing everything that needing everything because they're they're coming back online. Uh, so, 
So, you know, as, as negative and bearish and dark and dreary and depressing as everything is right now, and it's likely to get considerably more depressing, according to our work, in the short run, um, I would keep those longer-term concepts square in your mind and don't lose sight of the opportunity that I think is going to come here in March, April for those on the buy side of these markets, whether you're a cattle producer, whether you're a hog producer, whether you're a chicken <coughs> producer, uh, whether you're a bean processor, I, I think you just look for that window because that's how you're going to save yourself from, you know, severe economic pain if you don't take the right actions at the right time, according to what the way we see the world at this moment in time. Right. So. Yeah, I was uh, <clears throat> thinking about the same thing the other day. <clears throat> you look around, and there's a lot of a lot of things out there that are that are pointing to a, a create, especially just because of this demand for biodiesel and what that looks like. And then you strap everything else. I don't even think about the stuff you're talking about, but you strap that on top of all that. Well, let's let's throw another variable out because why, why why not? You know, we're here. We're having, we're having a good we're having a good uh, fun day today, right? That's right. So, um, so. We're going to stop selling SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We have to. Right. It has to stop. We've sold over 300 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that was not produced anywhere in the world, but was dumped on the market from our storage in the salt caves, Mm -hmm. okay, in the ground. When we stop and we actually have to, to price the crude oil market based upon what's actually being produced and what's actually being used. And we don't have 300 million barrels that is available over the next six months that was available this past six months. You know, I I don't, you know, I'm not a rocket scientist, but according to usual supply and demand, if you take 300 million barrels of supply off the market for the next six months, that was there the last six months, and even if you say demand's going to be flat to, let's say, even lower, it seems to me there would be a mismatch, yeah. that we would have to get the price of crude oil back to some higher level that would better actually match real production from real supply. And um, and remember, if China comes back online in the back half of the year, they need a heck of a lot of crude oil that they yeah. have not been buying lately. So once again, I you know, biodiesel is a function it's a derivative of the gas pump the diesel price the jet fuel price and the jet fuel price is a function of the crude oil price and how much it costs a, a uh, you know uh, to, to, to make diesel out of crude oil and so if that price is extremely high that means that you can charge much more for renewable diesel which means it makes those plants be able to afford a much higher soybean price to crush mm-hmm. because that's the way the economics work. So, so you know, if we had a, a, a significant increase in crude oil in, later on in the year, that adds an additional interesting element that right now we don't have because crude oil has been crushed for a whole host of reasons. But one of the big reasons is we've dumped 300 million barrels of oil on the market. So I think a lot of things, Casey, are coming to a head here. Um, especially from the second quarter onward that um, are going to have to be addressed and, you know, offer um, some significant opportunities, I think, for those that are um, proactive in managing their costs. Every farmer needs energy. 
Mm-hmm. And every airline needs energy. Um, every utility needs energy. You know, I am, if I'm on the board of these entities and my job is to manage the costs of energy, boy, I sure would be thinking about what should I be doing right now with crude oil in the 70 or $75 barrel area. I sure would be really thinking hard about, you know, how to mitigate upside price risks. If, if even 50% of what I just mentioned come to pass, you know, the, 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 I just think that they, you know, that there's an opportunity there. That's all I can say. So. I would agree with you, Sean. I would agree with you. So that was a uh, 35 minutes of a lot of information there. So if I want to listen to this one twice, Sean, folks, want to <laughs> get more information about what you got going on over Hack the Financial. What's the best way to do that? Our website is Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. Lots of information on there about our weather work, capital flows work, how we do what we do to see if the kind of information that we uh, tend to use to make our price forecast and that we share on your show from time to time uh, might be of value to your listeners. Right on. Well, Sean, happy new year. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. Happy new year to you too, Casey, and talk to you real soon. 23 is going to have a lot of content again. I like this. All right. I think so. I right think on. so. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and check out the YouTube channel, Moving Iron Podcast, uh, where you can find the video version of this podcast there. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related. And if you want to get $50 off of the uh, registration fee for the Moving Iron Summit coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee, September 11th through the 13th, mention uh, Axon and uh, you'll get that uh, $50 off for the hundred first 150 people that sign up for that. So with that, I am Casey Seymour, Sean Hackett. School of Iron, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century.